wanted to start today uh, for uh, sharing for a message um, by sharing a handful of memories with a common thread. So um, let me pass them on. I, uh, one memory I had this week as I was preparing for our message was driving a friend home from chemotherapy, or driving a friend to chemotherapy, I should say, and, uh, and asking them, like, how are you? How is this going? And I remember them exuding peace, like saying stuff like, I'm, I'm really okay. Like, I know that doesn't feel like it should be true. Um, maybe that's why it's God I, uh, is w what they were kind of uh, uh, explaining because it is scary, but I feel okay. And that simple little exchange has stayed with me. I remember eating at a Fireside Restaurant on Ravenswood. Anyone ever been to Fireside? It's a good restaurant. Yeah, it's a, good, yeah, it's a quality establishment right there. Uh, talking with a friend, and we were talking about the worst failure of his life. And I just was so struck by how comfortable he was to do this. As he, I mean, he is talking about the worst failure of his life. He's explaining his biggest regrets, his worst decisions, his biggest hurts, and the realness and the gentleness and the hope in his voice as he talked about it. Like, he's not like disassociative. He's like deeply connected to what he's talking about, but he was just okay doing that. And he shared how he'd like at this, this, you know, being at the end of himself, he had discovered more love than he possibly, like he thought was possible. Love feeling like a love from God, a love for like who he is deeply that lives inside him, but also like love from the people who stayed with him through this failure. I think it's the most genuine humility I've ever experienced in person from someone. Another memory I thought of this week was pacing in my room on the phone with an old mentor. I, I often pace when I'm on the phone. I don't, I don't know if my uh, wife or housemates have noticed that, but if I'm on the phone, I'm, I'm pacing back and forth in, the, uh, in my office. And uh, my, I, was, uh, I was sharing uh, with my mentor because I was in a season of feeling betrayed by people who were once really close friends. And my mentor is sharing with great calm about a time that he had experienced something that was similar and how painful it was. And yet, here he is. He was saying, there was no minimizing of my pain. There was no like, you'll get over it. And so you're just young, you know, none of that. There was no like explaining away the problem with religious -y language, like, well, you know, God must have allowed this struggle for you for some reason to grow you strong. None, none of that. There was none of that. It was, it was at the same time, there wasn't a wavering in him that I would eventually be okay. And I remember thinking after that, how did he do that? How did he neither bypass my pain with like spiritual platitudes, nor leave me settling for despair? How did he do that? What had he learned that just naturally hit me that way and gave me some hope? Finally, I thought this week of hearing Father Greg Boyle speak once. Has anyone ever uh, heard of Father Greg Boyle who's out in LA? Uh, he's a Jesuit priest, uh, the founder of Homeboy Industries. Uh, he is awesome. He's a hero of mine. 
And he passed on a story once of a young man that he'd come to know who after years of being abused and passing on that abuse in gang-related activity, this young man experienced encounters with Jesus and started to, you know, in one of those classic conversion stories, live in a different way. And the young man passed on to uh, Father Boyle a reflection that has just like lodged in me because it just was so beautiful. The reflection was, I used to be afraid of my wounds. Now my wounds are my friends. I used to be afraid of my wounds and now my wounds are my friends. That immediately like stuck to me and it has not gone away. So what is behind all of these memories that I thought of this week is what I want to talk about today. There's a common thread behind all of them. Our series of messages right now that we began the year with and we're continuing on here for another couple of weeks, uh, we are trying to intentionally engage the difficulty yet the beauty in stories like these, right? They are difficult. But there's something beautiful in each of those. I hope you feel that, or else I'm a bad storyteller. We want to talk about suffering. We want to talk about, as we've tried to, that there is, like, inherent to a good full life, there is a balance of responding to suffering in two ways at once. We have to, of course, try to alleviate suffering as best we can, that's clearly a part of a good and full life. But there's also a degree of embracing suffering that seems tied to a good, full life. And we used this concept now for several weeks. Maybe you're, you're picking up what we're putting down, this concept of a dialectic. A dialectic is where truth is not choosing one side or the other of attention, but letting that tension oh, hold together until a deeper truth emerges. And we've talked about Jesus uh, in our setting as a great model of a synthesis of these two things of alleviating suffering and embracing suffering. Jesus' self-professed mission is the kingdom of God, a mission of alleviating suffering. This is what most of the gospels in the Bible tell the story of. Jesus going about and alleviating suffering in a context where the Roman Empire refused to alleviate suffering for the common people. And yet, in Jesus' crucifixion, this most profound moment in Jesus' life with the culmination of the Gospels, Jesus embraces the inevitable suffering that comes his way that can't be alleviated or prevented. So there's a respond to both of those calls that's in a good, full life. That's where we find God in holding together both of them. So I've suggested a few times in the discussions that Haley and I have had uh, over the last month that uh, alleviate comes most naturally to people like us in the modern Western world. Our usual knee-jerk response to suffering, our own or somebody else's, is to alleviate it or try to prevent future suffering, right? We try to do this with medicine and with technology and with life hacks and with charity and with a meal train and with social justice efforts. All of this is so good. If we're a praying person, probably our instinctive concept of what does it mean to pray for somebody is to pray to alleviate suffering, right? All of that comes so naturally to us, and it's so good. This is why the modern world has alleviated so much suffering, because it comes naturally to us. It's a good thing. 
But what doesn't come as naturally to us is the other side of this dialectic, the embrace side. When we hear or see it, when we hear about it or see it, like in the memories that I just started sharing, oh, that's beautiful. We hear something there. there there's something intuitive there. That's why I wanted to start with these stories because we get it. it we're not like dummies. <laughs> we hear that and we're like, oh yeah, there's something there. That is, oh, I, my, I'm not afraid of my wounds. My wounds are my friends. Like, oh my gosh, there's some deep truth there that I, am a, I absolutely need to like follow. But does it come naturally to us to live that out, to find that being the case for us? That's what is harder and not as instinctive for us modern Westerners. And what I want to talk about today is that this is not just because it's a universal challenge that's always a struggle to embrace suffering. It is. It, it's not easy to embrace suffering. That's like, I mean, it's kind of built into those words, right? Like embrace suffering, ooh, you know? That's hard. So it is difficult for everybody, but it is uniquely difficult for our culture. What is it about our culture that makes it uniquely difficult. I think that is worth talking about. It's worth understanding that. So to explain, welcome to another History Corner with Vince. I know you've been waiting for this next episode. It's come. All right. So today's History Corner with Vince is the history of what people mean when they talk about the present, the present moment, the history of that. Did you know that that's changed profoundly over the last 500 years? When people talk about living in the present or like this present moment as opposed to the past, that has changed profoundly over the last 500 years. And I think it's so interesting, so I'm going to tell us about it. You may recall from our series last fall, we talked about how the story of the modern world of the last 500 years is a story of time speeding up. This is part of that story. The sociologist Hartmut Rosa calls a society's concept of the present, so like what we mean when we say the present moment, he calls that the rate of social decay. It's kind of a like heady sounding idea, but it's like how fast does the present decay and feel like it's the past, right? We're no, oh, it's no longer the present, and now it's the past because it's decayed, it's gone now. How fast does it feel like that happens? That's what we're gonna trace here. So pre-modern world, this is all of time before 500 years ago. It took a long time for the present to feel like it's decaying and considered the past. The present was not just my lifetime, but my parents' and my grandparents' lifetime, and maybe even beyond that. All those lifetimes that made up the current age of my people and my heritage. My life was about preserving the legacy of my people if I lived in the pre-modern world. Land is passed down. Marriages are arranged to facilitate that, right? What you are is just a small speck in a big, long story. When the present, uh, this is what's called the present is intergenerational. It involves multiple generations together. And when that's the case, the stories of highest importance are those stories that chronicle our ancestors' cycles of struggle and overcoming and how that mirrors our stories today. It's like the same thing. It's just a long cycle because the present, when we talk about the present, it's intergenerational. We have lots of generations in mind. Now, when we get to modernity beginning, this is about 500 years ago, sort of in the last three to 400 years, this really starts to take hold. The sense of the present shifts to generational. 
This is the dawning of capitalism and the industrial revolution is speeding up uh, society and the present starts to decay and become the past faster. Ooh, it's happening quicker now. Status and wealth are not perce perceived to be what was passed down to me. Status and wealth are about what I earn in my lifetime, right? This is the American dream. That's when this shows up. The American dream shows up because it's like, the narrative of anyone can make it. And love marriages for the sake of my lifetime replace arranged marriages for the sake of my legacy, right? Because love is about my lifetime, not my parents' or my grandparents' lifetime. The stories that matter now are not the stories tying the current generation to our ancestors, but the stories about heroic single generations, right? The one who worked to pull themselves up by their bootstraps, right? Oh, man, those stories. They get us now in the modern world. Or the story of the one who found true love, right? Yes, yes, these stories start to, like, jump onto the scene, and that's all the stories that we're reading now, finding true love, pulling yourself up by your bootstraps. Because when I speak about the present, I'm speaking about my lifetime, not my parents. That's the past. Posh. Oh, pish posh. That's what I was trying to say. Pish posh. It's the past. I want to talk about my lifetime. Okay, so we keep going. Late modernity, this is post-World War II, post the 1960s Cultural Revolution, and the sense of the present is now intra-generational, which means like there's lots of presence within one generation. The rate of the present decaying and feeling like the past is so fast now. Oh my goodness, is it moving. There is unprecedented consumer prosperity in the, in the 1950s in America, and it changes the calculations of what a full life looks like for Americans. The advent of birth control separates sex from generational commitment. The pace of transportation and communication and production is so fast, and we're all so struck by like, ooh, look at that new car. Ooh, look at that new house. Oh my goodness, all of the draw to the new, it's happening so quickly, we start to get the phenomenon of the midlife crisis. <gasps> oh no, the midlife crisis. The length of time of like considering the present a whole generation is insane now. Are you crazy? I feel like I have a crisis at midlife because thinking about my whole lifetime as the present, that doesn't make sense. My now the stories we want to tell are the person who reinvents themselves midway, right? Midway through life. They, 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 they started a whole new life because they needed to, because they needed to break out of the conformity of the first half of their life. Interesting, right? And now, like, trace this down to 2024, and we talk about, like, the present rather than the past, like, more than intragenerational, is it like, like in the age of social media, like the present is like this week, right? Th today, th this hour, the present no longer means what it used to. And our sociologist friend who taught me this, Hartmut Rosa summarizes this history saying, our sense of the present has contracted. It's no longer holding a lot of time it's holding very, very little time that slips away quickly. Now this is not, it's not bad or good. It just is. This is what it means to be alive today and talk about the present moment. But there are a lot of positives to it and there are a lot of negatives to it because it, 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 like anything, it's just, it just is. And one challenge is it's really hard to have a long perspective on our experiences 
of suffering when the present is so contracted. It's really hard to have a long perspective on an instance of me suffering because the present is such a thin slice of my life, of the life of the world. It's really hard to step back and see what's happening right now as a part of a larger timeline of ups and downs and trials and triumphs. Not in a way that minimizes my current experience, but just in a way that builds a foundation for it to stand on, that helps us contextualize what's happening to us. Imagine a future more creatively. I asked earlier about these standout stories of embracing suffering that I began with. What had they learned? What was behind their experience that made those stories so beautiful? And, ooh, I want something there. I think what it is, is a long perspective. All of those people had gained a long perspective on their experiences. If you come from a marginalized ethnic or cultural background, this is something that can mitigate the contraction of the present and keep long perspective in your life because it's so vital for marginalized individuals, for identity formation, if that's you, to stay tied to your past. But in general, long perspective, seeing my life as a part of a long timeline, is hard to learn in our culture. It's really easy to have wide perspective, that's for sure. You know, like no current event escapes our mind today, right? We got a wide perspective on what's going on in the current moment. But wide perspective doesn't necessarily help us embrace suffering. In general, wide perspective of the modern, like, in, in, in our world where anything can be Googled, that's what I mean by wide perspective, right? It just kind of makes us feel more frantic, not more accepting. It inflames comparison and reactivity. It's the opposite of equanimity, balance, wisdom, right? We feel like we have so much perspective because nothing that happens like we miss, right? We see it on social media immediately. We see it in the news immediately. It turns around so quick but it's only a one-dimensional perspective. It's only a wide perspective on the current moment, not a long perspective on life over time. We have a hard time seeing the larger picture, larger picture of a whole life lived that inevitably includes things like failures, tragedies, setbacks, death, which people saw more readily when the present was generational, because you kind of you knew that was coming, let alone the larger picture of a legacy, of a heritage the, that inevitably includes things like conflict and struggle, evil even, strife, overcoming cycles of life. That's what people more readily saw when the present was intergenerational. It's uncomfortable to acknowledge, but part of this is war not being a close-at-hand fact of life for modern people, modern Westerners like us. Witnessing up close the horrors of war ties you to existential struggles of the generations that came before you, right? We recently went to the Museum of Science and Industry with our kids, and I went to the submarine exhibit where you see like the newspaper articles as World War II unfolds. And I remember looking at them 
And I don't know, I guess I was just in the right place at that moment, but I started to like tear up seeing the newspaper articles and how like close the days were together of like Pearl Harbor is bombed. America is at war with Japan. Germany and Italy declare war on the United States. Like you see, there's like, there's like days and weeks apart that separate that. It's just like, oh my God, like they were tied to a story that was so terrifyingly big. And it is a great privilege that I live in a time and a culture and an age in a, in a, in a space right now where it is extremely unlikely that I or my children will ever be required by law to like serve in the military. That's an extreme privilege. And that's not the story of most people in history, right? So we're aware of, we're aware of war all too well because we have this wide perspective, but we don't know it by proximity, by experience. And that is something that limits our ability to have that long perspective. So we are unpracticed in considering these things. The inevitability of struggle, the inevitability of conflict or death or war, failure, all of those things. And you combine that with our really good, really great ability to alleviate suffering as modern Westerners, it's great. And without realizing it though, we can turn our instinct to alleviate into an instinct to avoid. We can reflexively operate as though any suffering should be run from, managed away, prayed away, explained away. We shelter young people from its existence. I wonder if you notice an avoidance around suffering in you at all. I often avoid uh, by coping with food or drink or entertainment, busyness with another task. That's a sign of avoiding. I wonder if you notice that at all in you, avoiding suffering. I wonder if you notice a desire to avoid someone in your life who you know is in pain because you're not sure what to say. That's sometimes an example of avoiding suffering. I wonder if you notice explaining away suffering in you. Like, it's a little uncomfortable to sit for too long when you've just shared something hard about your life, and so you cut the tension with a line like, but, you know, but things, are, things are okay, things are great, things are great. Do you notice that at all in you? That's an avoidance of suffering. That's really, that's not a bad thing about you. It's a really, like, common modern Western thing. We need, to, we need to address that. Not because you're a bad person, but just because, oh yeah, that's not gonna get us what we need. I wonder if you ever notice a desire to tie everything up neatly with a, you know, an old phrase or an adage or a scripture if you've been in church settings. All things God, in all things God works for those who love him, so it must be God's will. It's that desire to like, oh, let me just tie it up neatly. It was too uncomfortable, tie it up. That's another example of avoiding suffering. Is the only conception of prayer that you can imagine a praying away of suffering that maybe starts to feel inadequate and dissatisfying? Not because we shouldn't pray those things, but maybe that's the only prayer that we ever pray. And it doesn't work. And then we start to feel exhausted and we start to wonder, is there a God? 
If you have kids, do you notice a drive to shelter your kids from scary or uncertain or bad news, like about a family member who's sick or about violence in the world, like what's happening in Gaza? The risk in these is that we or our kids hit some big turning point or we face some big struggle for the first time and we just feel utterly overwhelmed. We, we don't know how to cope healthily because we've never practiced it. We've never faced this before. Or even worse, we face those things for the first time and we feel bitter because having never talked about suffering, having never leaned into that idea of having to embrace suffering, we have developed, without realizing it, an entitlement to never have to suffer. And so every difficulty that we face is like an offense to our being. And we, it's like proof that life is meaningless and there's no purpose and there's no God and everybody hates me, you know? That's, oh gosh, that's really troubling when we get in those. I wonder if it sounds like you've ever visited, even for a moment, either of those. So what's a way forward? I want to help us recover long perspective, something that's been lost. But it's not like the world was perfect or grand in the past, right? We just looked at a long timeline. There's a hell of a lot of bad stuff that happened along that timeline. So we're not trying to like go backward. We're trying to go forward. What is a way to recover this thing that's been lost, but in moving forward, not moving backward? There are ways that aren't proximity to war that can help us sustainably have a long perspective on our lives. And I want to pass on one more memory in the spirit of that, of a way I've experienced spirituality help. I have a lot of history with a phrase from the Bible that we sang today, and that is uh, in, in this song uh, that we sang, all flesh is like the grass, the grass withers and fades away. The glory of man is like a flower that shrivels in the sun and falls, but the word of the Lord endures forever. So this scripture is in the Hebrew Bible in the prophet Isaiah. We read a lot of Isaiah uh, leading up to Christmas. Isaiah is Jesus' favorite uh, Hebrew prophet to, um, to quote. It's uh, quoted in the New Testament in 1 Peter, Peter of, uh, of Jesus' following fame. I remember my first experience with this scripture. I wonder if, when you, maybe, maybe today was your first experience with this scripture. I wonder if you had a similar experience as we sang it, that it's kind of a killjoy. <laughs> did, did you feel that? You can be honest if you did. Like you read, it's like flesh is like the grass. It withers and fades away. Like, oh, come on. Like, oh. It's, you know, it's, I think that I first experienced that way because I have no doubt had picked up a lot like subconscious messages from popular American Christianity about human beings are such worms and without God, they are nothing. They are grass that is, should be thrown into the furnace. You know, like it's, you pick up that mess. Oh, we're just little worms. But it, that's not at all what this passage is about. My experience of this scripture is it's like the song on the album that doesn't immediately grab you, but then eventually it's your favorite song in the album. Yeah, music lovers, come on, you've had that experience, right? So mostly through hearing Kezia, my wife, listen in our house from time to time to the sung version that we, that we sang today, this scripture started to burrow its way into me. It's deeper, deeper. All flesh is like the grass. The grass withers and fades away. The glory of man like a flower that shrivels in the sun and falls. But the word of the Lord endures forever. 
One day, I remember, it, it felt like an encounter with God because the power in this scripture clicked for me. And it's the power of long perspective. I, like every other person in the world, I'm just, I'm just grass. I'm flower. Not at all ugly. Not at all worthless. Beautiful. Glorious, right? The, the glory of the flower. And the, I mean, think of spring in Chicago, right? Like, oh my gosh, the grass, the flowers. It's, woo, yeah, glory, right? That's what you think. It's beautiful, right? So it's not, it's not calling us worthless or ugly. It's calling us glorious, beautiful, but only for a short season in the grand scheme of time, right? Eventually, we get to winter and the grass and the flowers wither and shrivel and fall. Inevitably, our lives include suffering. It's nothing to be ashamed of. It's nothing to be afraid of. It's just a part of our lives. And the beautiful thing is that the word of the Lord endures forever. The activity of God in the world, the moment-to-moment affection that God has for me, attention to my life and to my cares, to my experience, that endures forever. The, the love demonstrated for me in the life of Jesus, interacting with me by God's spirit, that word of the Lord endures forever. God is pleased to, to sustain me for this short season in the grand scheme of things, pleased to take the memory of me and let it nourish those who come after me, just as God was pleased to take the memory of those who came before me to nourish me. This long story that I'm a part of, the word of the Lord carries us and endures us forever, even as our glory, as our beauty is there for a moment, and then it fades. I am a small yet beloved part of a long story. And the tone of this is not like, quit overblowing your pain, you whiner, right? You're so small and insignificant, so just get over it. It's not that at all. It's just the opposite tone. It's the message of like, God, God is, God is with you in that, enduring your story, enduring the stories of those who came before you and will do so for those who come after you. God, the God that knows suffering has incorporated this kind of hurt into the story before and can do it again with you. The scripture has fed me so much. I never expected it to, but it has fed me so much to help me find long perspective. This is what meditation on something does. We, we sink into it. We just kind of read it over. Do you see, hear how we, how we kind of continue to pull back the layers of that scripture and there's more there? And it's like, I, it's like my, my son who, with a watermelon, and he, and he wants to get, you know, like every bit of red watermelon down to the, you know, like he's, he's even eating some of the rind because he wants to get every bit. That's what we do when we meditate on a scripture. We sit and we get everything out of it. And meditating on scriptures like this or other ancient wisdom that can help you feel like you are attached to a long story. You can see more not just that little slim sliver of present, that can feed us, can help us when we are in those experiences of suffering because we see that we are not alone and we don't have to be minimized to do that. We don't have to explain away our suffering. We don't have to avoid our suffering. 
And we don't have to have a dissatisfying obsession with like a prayer life that doesn't feel like it's moving us forward. We can let God show God's self to us as the God who carries our story into the next moment, even as small a part of the big story as we are. So that's my, my recommendation of a practice for us uh, this week or this month or the next time you are feeling sort of crowded and, and, uh, and, and pushed into the corner by an experience of suffering in your own life or the suffering around you in the world. What does it look like to step off the conveyor belt, get behind the waterfall, as we talk about often here, and meditate on a scripture like this? How can that long perspective teach us in the way that these stories I began with taught me Oh man, there, there is a version of embracing suffering that can heal me, that can make my wounds my friends, that can help me to stand on two feet even when the world feels exhausting and impossible to move forward. That's something that we all need to be able to do because not all suffering can be alleviated or prevented. It often will need to be embraced. So in that spirit, I would love to pray for us, if you would let me. Once you get comfortable in your seat. <clears throat> On the spirit of being meditative, I want to pray another scripture that is in a similar vein over us. And I'm gonna pray it multiple times and then we're gonna try to peel back the layers. And you can close your eyes as we do this and just kind of imagine like a layer of onion peeling back or you can imagine yourself like moving deeper and deeper like down your head, down your spine, into the center of your body. If some imagery helps you do that, that's what I encourage you to do. Imagine we're, we're digging deeper and deeper and deeper into the truth of a long perspective. Lord, what are human beings that you care for them? Mere mortals that you think of them. They're like a breath. Their days are like a fleeting shadow. And yet, you care for us. You think of us. Lord, what are human beings that you care for them? Mere mortals that you think of them. We are like a breath. Our days are like a fleeting shadow. And yet, you do care for us. You do think of us. God, what a beautiful thing to meditate on. That as small as we are, as afraid as we might sometimes feel, you care for us, you hold us, you endure us. And whatever pain or exhaustion or despair that we are feeling currently, it is not the whole story of our life. And it need not hold us captive from joy, from connection, 
from peace, from action. For you are the God whose word and love endures forever. And you do care for us, small though we are. And you do think of us, small though we are. The God of the universe that sees all, sees uniquely me and you. And that is a beautiful paradoxical thing to consider. So hold us here in your love, God. Show us how near you are. Inspire us and encourage us in the things that feel impossible right now. And we pray that any bit of that that we are experiencing right now in a good way would flow through us to the next person. And we'd experience the joy of that. That our own stories of becoming friends with our wounds can help others do the same. And we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. So I went melancholic today. You guys okay with that? That was very melancholy, yeah? We went into the depths. Did you think you were doing that, going to church this morning? It's okay. We can, we can dance between humor and grief. We can dance between joy and suffering. We can do that. That's important for us. It's not going to be done for us automatically going about life in America. So we have to intentionally do it. And um, yeah, I, I am really appreciating this series that we've done.